You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians network. Find more great shows like this at wearelibertarians.com. All right, let's get back to some boring subjects. Understand the risk to our country. Freedom brings people together. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Learn more at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to We Are Libertarians. My name is Chris Spangle. It is great to see you today. Welcome to the program. Today we're going to talk about criminal justice reform. Obviously, that is on the top of everybody's mind, not just policing reform. Uh, we're going to spend a few shows kind of talking about that. And uh, But today we're going to talk to John Odermatt and Sarah Brady Wagner and Reinhold and Harry will be here. And we're going to talk about seven essential criminal justice and policing reforms. So stay tuned right after this. Warning, this show is for adults, produced by semi-adults. So the language is sometimes strong and offensive. Uh, I don't know what I said. Uh. Welcome to We Are Libertarians, where our goal is to help you sound smarter while talking to your friends. We examine current events from a libertarian perspective while treating modern politics with all of the irreverence it deserves. There has been lie after lie. We toss out the screaming heads, put people before political parties, and give context to the news to make you think. Now, here's our host, a 15-year veteran of politics and media, Chris Spangle. Welcome back to the program. Again, my name is Chris Spangle. Thank you so much for joining us here on the show tonight. We're going to be talking about criminal justice reform. We're going to talk about things like qualified immunity. We're going to talk about uh, things like ending civil asset forfeiture. And by the end, maybe I'll have nailed how to say that without walking, walking. Uh, I said that. Sort of the way that Donald Trump walks down a ramp. So we are going to have a fun show tonight. Lots of old friends. We will start with the second oldest. Harry, how are you doing? It is so nice to see you. Yeah, nice to see you too. I'm going good, going good. Um, finishing up the last day of my small mini vacation. Ooh, so, how, how'd that go? It was good. Uh, uh, my wife and I, we took a small little vacation to celebrate our uh, 17 years together. So congratulations. A small one. Couldn't go anywhere or do anything, but you know. <laughs> I know. Yeah, we we went to Bloomington recently uh, this past Saturday, and we're, we we're going to try and find some place to eat after going to a park. Uh, and it just ended up in Chili's because in the entire town of Bloomington, that was the only place you could eat. It's it's uh, it's interesting. Uh, next up is Reinhold. Reinhold, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I have not had the couple days off that uh, Harry has had, so <laughs> I am running on empty a little bit, but here to go and try to make it a fun time for everybody. Do your best. Do your best. Uh, next up is Sarah Brady Wagner, longtime uh, co-host of The Wall Daily. She's been, she got her dream job. Hopefully it is still your dream job. Uh, you have to say yes now that you're on the internet. Uh, but uh, you are, uh, what do you do now? Where are you working? Uh, I'm working with Grassroots Leadership Academy, uh, which is the training arm of Americans for Prosperity. So I get to do actually a lot of what I get to do is, is still criminal justice reform. So it's talking about uh, what are some solutions to make better uh, incentives and improve the whole system. And it's been kind of nice that all of a sudden everybody cares about this issue that I've been trying to push forward for several years now. It is funny because somebody yeah. I think it may have you been you, Reinhold, who shared in the in our chat like. 
uh, oh, Democrats have done more in one week for criminal justice reform than libertarians had ever done. And I was like, uh, who do you think was holding, who was yeah. building the pile of Kindle for the last several years? It's, it's just, go ahead. No, it was just, it was more of a joke about Antifa, but. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, yeah, right. It is kind of funny, though, because you see, you know, the left is suddenly like, okay, well, we're all on this this bandwagon up. We're going to really push criminal justice reform. And they look around for ideas. And luckily, you've got a few libertarian think tanks who are like, we can tell you what to do without police. Yeah. I mean, Justin Amash, day one, started talking about qualified mm -hmm. immunity and was in a position to do something about it. And who cares if the Democrats are trying to co-opt it now and say that and never mention his name. But, you know, he was there pushing the idea. It was a yeah, perfect opportunity same. for him to be a flagrant libertarian. That's right. First yeah. chance. It's the same thing with uh, uh, same-sex marriage and uh, was drug, you know, drug legalization. We, yeah. you know, libertarians have been on the forefront for that for for decades, and the Democrats finally came along and decided to co-opt that. One of the well, o they, one of the OGs. Let's bring in Odie. Let's hold on, and then I'll come to you, Harry. But uh, the OG of criminal justice reform <laughs> in the libertarian podcast space is OD uh, John Odermatt of Lions of Liberty. Who hosts Felony Friday? Every Friday, you do what on your program on your little show over there? Well, first of all, great to be here. Thank you for the uh, the invite. Uh, good to be with you all and all the great We Are Libertarians listeners out there. Um, yeah, my show is called Felony Friday, which uh, I've had it for I don't know four years now. I don't keep track of time, but uh, I expose injustice in the criminal justice system. And you know, one way that popular way that I do that is by bringing on people who have suffered that injustice and been through the system and some decades in prison for completely nonviolent uh, crimes and come out on the other side and share their story. So, uh, yeah, so I have a lot of experience talking to people, learning their struggles, seeing these different crazy ways that people end up in prison and uh, trying to let more people know that, you know, this is a serious problem in this country. My memory is being jogged. Sarah, were you on Felony Friday at one point? I don't know if you, I was. I don't know if you want to talk about it. I mean, it was on the internet. <laughs> I was. It, in fact, it's actually one of the first things that comes up when you Google me, which took a minute to get comfortable with because it was this like nice headline that's like, uh, college student gets arrested for, for Adderall. And it's like, <laughs> oh, thanks. You know, <laughs> really did a lot of work to make sure to have that not be the first thing. But I guess that's that's my job now. Well, the Lions of Liberty website, the SEO is so strong that you can't really overcome it. It is as yeah. powerful as Mark Clare's hair or Howie Snowden's alcoholism. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it's very, very glad to have all of you here tonight and uh, encourage you to go subscribe to Lions of Liberty. Uh, does the Grassroots Academy have a podcast or? We actually do. Okay. We just started one. Um it, it, you know what? And I'm going to pull it up so I did I make sure that I don't get She's the just unwrapping it wrong. out of the box right now. It's that brand new. That's all she's doing right now. Is, is It is. Well, and the great thing is that we've we, a lot of the uh, episodes now have been um, criminal justice reform because that's what, what the, all the questions have been. Yeah. Top priority. That's what it's called. Top priority. So make sure that you subscribe to those two podcasts in your feed. I want to take a minute just before we jump into the conversation to thank our patrons. I've been remiss and I've been doing this at the end. It should be the very first thing we do is honoring the people 
who help us so much. You guys are the ones who pay all the bills. You guys are the ones that keep us going. And uh, I have to tell you, the last few episodes that we've had are the record setters. They're the biggest we've ever had. And uh, got a lot of great comments from people. And that is only possible because of our patrons, which you can join at WeAreLibertarians.com. And I want to single out and, and say thank you to our $100 a month patrons. First and foremost, Reinhold, who is not only a co-host, but also one of those folks. Anthony Meyer, a new one, Brad Tracy, Craig DaCosta, Ed Brehob, Jason Doolittle, Jeff Bennett, Christy Avery, and Matthew Durbin. Thank you so much to you folks. Uh, now, John, you, right as all this kind of started to flare up uh, and the conversation around, uh, l- let's start with systemic racism and the term itself, uh, because that is something that I think that term makes libertarians uncomfortable, especially the white ones. Uh, and so libertarians, huh? not just libertarians. Yeah, it makes a lot of people yeah. uh, nervous when it's said so. You know, I'll let you two flip a coin, John or Sarah, as to who would like to take that topic, and then we'll go around the horn. What is systemic racism? Is it real, and how does it manifest manifest itself in our society? I, I guess I guess I'll tee it off and uh, say yes. I, I think it is real. Um, I, you don't have to look any farther than the war on drugs to see systemic racism at work. Uh, from you know the the Godfather, the the guy who really started the war on drugs, Harry Anslinger, and if you want to hear his backstory and how that all happened, I highly recommend the book uh, "Chasing the Scream" by Johan Hari, who I've had on my show. Um, great guy who you know, goes goes through that and, and then goes on to profile you know a bunch of different people in different walks of life, um, you know, struggling and profiting off of and. Uh, in a, embedded in the uh in the war on drugs black market but it's it's definitely real and i see it you know with a lot of the people i interview have uh suffered due to the systemic racism um in the system that has put them in a position where they get instead of uh you know maybe the uh like with mandatory minimum laws with the uh difference between crack cocaine and uh or between cocaine and, and uh and crack where they get sentences that are multiple times longer than their white counterparts in a, uh, a much more, uh, you know, come who come at it through a much more affluent um, path. So it's, it's definitely real and it is uncomfortable to talk about, but um, that's why I like starting talking about the war on drugs, because I think that's a good way to, uh, to kick it off. I, it's interesting. I kind of actually come at it from a, slightly different angle. So um, my my first, as I've talked about on your podcast before, my first kind of cue to who there was a problem with the system was when I got a personal introduction to uh, what jail is like. But since then, like getting involved in criminal justice reform, like you notice the disparity, which is is what John spoke to. And, and we should take notice of that disparity. But as far as where it comes from, it's really interesting that when you actually look into the history of the systems, that's what to me like this the concept of systemic racism is um it's not about individuals being racist or even acting in prejudiced ways it's about a system that has baked into it mm-hmm. these racist um concepts and values so i mean our policing system as it is developed out of uh, two ways uh, either developed out of um policing in the north usually came from uh, municipal forces that were explicitly intended to keep uh, the poor people in order. Uh, and 
in the South, they had developed out of uh, slave patrols, which were made to keep the slaves in order. And in both cases, they then were kind of melded and shifted into what we now have as our policing system, which is so different from anybody else in the world. Yeah, sorry, I've I was on I've got myself muted. Reinholder Harry, do you want to jump in there? Say anything? I Reinhold, would do you have anything to say? I you know, I often <laughs> find it tough to to come up with words sometimes about no. Um so the the thing I have about the the systemic racism is that it it's kind of it kind of throws people off because they're try they're trying to they think you're trying to say that uh, the individuals themselves are racist and it's not necessarily the case. It's the system itself that because of the way it was implemented uh, over years has kind of ingrained a basic racism into it. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that every single person uh, in the system itself is racist. Right. So that's, that's where I think a lot of people stumble on that. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. Like, And so James asks here, is it racism or racial suppression to maintain a status quo? And I think that's... What if racism is the status quo? Go ahead. Expand on that. Well, I mean, that's that's we... I think that's really what we're kind of dealing with the fruits of is it's really, really uncomfortable to directly like discuss like, oh, okay, we've had all these, you know, racist values and, and issues within our uh, society. Let's really like dig down and figure out where they are so that we can not continue to perpetuate this. The status quo is a certain degree of racism because we kind of always have this, this assumption that like, well, it, it'll just work itself out. Like if, as long as we don't focus on it and we all individually try not to be prejudiced, then, then eventually this will all just kind of like get worked out of the system. But what we're seeing though is like, actually, it doesn't. We have to talk about that. Go ahead, Harry. Oh, yeah, correct. And the, a lot of people also have that misconception that if you're racist, you're stupid. They're not stupid. People who, a lot of people who set up the rules, the regulations, a lot of these laws are, some of them had some brains in there and had and did set the system up to do what it is and help keep, and help keep it going. Um, and it, and it really does, uh, and it's nice when people really start start showing it when people have to act interact with the system, and that's usually when it comes to And is it is the conversation around this mainly on policing? And I know that a lot of black activists talk a lot about economics. And when you look at the coronavirus pandemic and who was hit the hardest, it hit the black community the hardest because a they're essential workers. They're exposed to it at a higher rate because they're at a lower lower income bracket. They're also, um, you know, there there's many different factors that kind of went into that, and that's why it hit that community a lot harder. That kind of illustrated the problem and illustrated kind of what's being said. Uh, but by and large, policing is such a flashpoint because of policy. And so when I look at people who go, well, systemic racism is not real. You go, you just don't want to vote a different way. <laughs> like, so the problem is that you're, you're, you don't want to make any changes because you've been, become comfortable voting the exact same way. And if you start having to vote a different way to repeal things like the war on drugs, it might make you uncomfortable. You give more economic advantage by removing certain regulations or rules that might make you have to compete with, I mean, the, the whole conversation around immigrants, for instance, is that. 
We want to limit access to com- having to compete with other people. Why would that not apply to the black community if it applies to the immigrant community coming from certain voices? Man, am I off base? Am I kind of do I have like a thread here or what? No, you're absolutely right when it comes to that, uh, because a lot of the laws and stuff like that for just barbershops and hair braiding affects the black community more than it affects uh, like any other community, because black hair is completely different than most people's hair. And they put this huge high training bar on it so to be able to start a barbershop or hair when most black people, this is we've grown up just doing this and doing stuff to our hair. Then all of a sudden, if we want to start a business to do this, they make us jump through all these hoops to even just start a simple barbershop or just sit there and cut hair. Um, it also uh, go back to your other point when you're talking about hitting the black community. The thing is, the other reason to hit the black community hard is because one, you're right, a lot of them were essential workers working in a lot of different factories. The other one is high mistrust in government and government's news sources too, as well, um, because they've been, you know, uh, affected by different like government reports stuff like that, and just being just it's that high mistrust of the government. It, it, it just and that stemmed from it. Then the also the third uh, third fork of that is religion in the black community. It's very high. Most black people will go to church on Sunday and then have Bible study on Wednesday, so they will congregate. It's that whole community factor of the idea that and the of being close to your family and bringing everybody together, especially during the summertime. This is black cookout season. This is when we uh, I load up the grills. We pick. We go to a park and we end up cooking out and not be able to do that you know it's it's it kind of hurts because you're not be able to be with your family you know the simple fact that like my daughter's at this age now where she can actually go to the cookout go out and play with the other kids and actually start really knowing her relatives like that and nope you can't so a lot of and i've seen a lot of people just reject it's like nope we're doing it anyways we're gonna go and so that's also helps to spread as well I the other we, thing is the comorbidities when it comes to uh, black people, because black people have high blood pressure and diabetes because of the awful food that gets pumped into us. Because a lot of black people don't take enough potassium in their diets, and and also um, vitamin D. You know, yes. just through through, through mm-hmm. biology, it's it's more difficult mm-hmm. for black people to get vitamin D from from the yeah. sun. Um, mm-hmm. Which and we don't know how much that plays into COVID. Um, it's been speculated it could be a pretty substantial could be playing into the drop right now we're seeing in, in death rate who knows there's probably a bunch of different factors playing into it but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad you brought up harry um occupational licensing that's, that's one of the seven uh seven essential reforms that i that i talked about and a lot of people pushed back on it like well, you know why are you talking about you know mandatory occupational licensing and you know a couple of different reasons one of the reasons exactly what you're talking about because it's keeping you know a class of people that easily could uh, better themselves, add value to society, advance in society, work their way up the socioeconomic ladder, it's holding them down, keeping them out. Um, And also, uh, if we're going to end the war on drugs, which I think we should, and I think we should do it by decriminalizing all drugs, there's going to be a lot of people across the the population who are going to need to find another way to make money um, because the the value, the, the price point, uh, the amount of uh, money you can make in the drug trade is going to go down when that prohibition's removed. Uh, it's going to be organized more efficiently and distributed more efficiently. And we're going to need to open up opportunities. I mean, aside from that, it should be done anyway. But um, it would make sense if we're going to decriminalize drugs to also get rid of occupational licensing, mandatory occupational licensing at the same time. Of course, if there wants to be private occupational licensing groups and things like that that come together, um, you know, that's 
that's all well and good. Yeah, when you look back, and uh, there's a great movie that kind of illustrates this called Selma. It's free on Amazon Prime right now, and uh, it, it shows some of the, the limited access that uh, people of color, but black specifically in the South, had to the voting system. I mean, it, it, until the, the Voting Rights Act in 65, I believe it was 65, there wasn't any black person registered in any southern state at all. Period. Zero. Because you had to go in, you had to fill, you had to pay a poll tax, which was based on the amount of years you weren't registered to vote. You, in some states like Mississippi, you had to have someone vouch for you. So you had to have a, a registered voter say that you were worthy of voting. You had to pass, uh, you had to pass a test. Alabama's constitution was specifically written to uphold white supremacy, it was in its stated purpose that to uphold white supremacy, and then you had to repeat back certain portions of it. And in one scene, they show Oprah, who produced the movie, basically saying, "She said, uh, what's the preamble to the Constitution?'" She re- reads it off. How many judges, county judges, are there? Sixty-seven. Name them. And so it was completely up to the registrar. So the 65 registrars in Alabama, for instance, were the most powerful people in the, in the county. And they didn't want blacks to vote because it denied them the ability to serve on juries. So if there was a crime against a black person, you couldn't, you couldn't access a court until the 60s. And if you did, you were wildly, wildly tilted against you, for instance. Uh, and so... You know, and James Reeb, uh, who is one of the protesters that got killed in the march, uh, in the Selma march, that was a clear-cut case of murder, and it 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 ended up not being prosecuted because it, it was a hung jury, I believe it was, and so the guys got off just because it was baked into the system. Uh, it was it was in their laws from the it was the fruit of the poisonous tree to keep people from registering to vote, which limited their access to jobs. It limited their access to justice. It limited their access to vote. You couldn't serve in political positions. And in Selma, they get the, the right to vote. And Jim Clark, the, the infamous sheriff, is voted out because three quarters of the town was black. And so once they had the ability to vote, their power was removed. And so I don't think that people tend to think about things in in a way like I'm reading this book called Grand Dragon about the Klan in the 20s and the explicitness with which things were done in the 20s is far different 100 years later but so many of the ghosts of that system of Jim Crow of the system put in place by our grandparents put in place by our parents Those still exist and limiting access of people that don't have have not historically had power. That is what the conversation is. And so one thing that I think we keep running into is that people think that if they acknowledge a problem exists, they must then co-sign all the solutions that they're uncomfortable with. And that is what I would encourage people to to kind of lean into the discomfort a little bit. And if reading a book makes you uncomfortable, watching a documentary makes you uncomfortable. Even, you know, I was talking to a family member and they're like, well, I was trying to watch this auto program and then there was a two-hour conversation on race, so I just tuned into my DVDs. Because they didn't, he literally said, I don't want to be uncomfortable. You know, and that's kind of the conversation here is, are we, do we, 
should we answers yes start talking about how the political system is structured and where does it need to be reformed abolished changed because it's not working for people when your fellow americans start saying overwhelmingly this is not working this is happening to us please pay attention we're being denied liberty we're being denied justice do libertarians turn their face and say i only care about my personal liberty not yours and i don't find that to be acceptable in any way shape or form we have to fight for freedom and liberty in every in our own communities in our own lives and around the world and wherever state power exists it needs to come under a microscope and when the state kills someone by putting a boot on their neck we should be concerned with that because they have state authority. They have state power. And so they have to have a higher examination. It isn't a matter of George Floyd had a criminal record. So we need it's a flat binary choice between the cop versus George Floyd. No, that's the state. The state has a certain responsibility that we need to to think about. And so that's what this conversation is about. It's not to call people racist. It's not to say that if you vote a certain way, you are racist. That's not what it's about. It's about saying, what are the parts of the system that are denying justice and liberty to your fellow citizens, and what do we need to change and how? And there may be some racist. There may be some racist pieces of our history that began, like the war on drugs, for instance. I was going to save this till we got there. But John Ehrlichman, Nixon's former domestic policy advisor, in 1994 said, this was a guy who was basically chief of staff to Nixon, who your grandparents voted for, said the following. You want to know what this was really all about? He asked with the bluntness of a man who, after public disgrace and a stretch in the federal prison, had little left to protect. The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. That is a man with political power that had no problem in order to keep his political power, robbing the liberty and the lives and the families. I've heard, cons I've heard conservatives my whole life, coming from a Republican background, say, you know, we just need black fathers to do their job. Well, that's the root of it, right? Like, so you don't want to look at the root. You don't want to look at the cause. You don't want to look at all this stuff. And it's it just, it's, it's maddening to me that you... That, that people will look at this stuff and not go uh, all these other pieces that we find to be egregious. I'm going to turn my back and not look at this thing because I'm uncomfortable with it. Uh, so with that, let's start with the seven suggestions or demands. Let's call them demands. Demands. Uh, demands. We demand. I'm not the most forceful person. I demand that you follow these seven steps. Uh, but, you know, John, you put together this list of seven people. Let's start with why did you put the list together other than to get clicks for being libertarian where this piece is uh, housed. But how did you put this list together and then what is number one? Yeah, I had, uh, you know, after I think I, I guess I did the podcast first where I talked about these 
it was it started out with six six different things that uh, that I recommended. I added civil asset forfeiture at the end, and it was just another way to get the word out. I just wanted more people to see it. I wanted people to be able to share it. I wanted people to be able to you know grab it and put it on Twitter or Instagram, which which uh, many people did. And thank you all for sharing it. And I saw people taking snips of it, you know, just taking one here, one there. Let's do this, do that. And I said, let's let's package it together and, and put put these seven reforms in, in you know one document that could definitely be written better and expanded on and probably uh, resourced much more eloquently. But uh, it's it's a start. And uh, I mean, I think that it's great to see we're already gaining some steam here with the qualified immunity with what Justin Amash is doing. And I think Justin Amash put out a list. I don't know if he's reading what I'm doing. I'm not sure what he yeah, Maybe he is. But he put out a list very similar to mine the next day after I put this out. So I don't know. Maybe he is following what I'm doing. Uh, the first one on the list is demilitarize, demilitarize the police. And some of these are hard to say, so just bear, bear with us. Um, but one thing I want to add kind of just to uh, off of what you were saying, Chris, this moment in time we're in right now and how the, the wool has been pulled over uh, people's eyes and you know people really followed the rhetoric rather than the reality of what was going on. A little upside down argument for the current time we're in is I think it's good that Donald Trump is president right now because it is so apparent that he doesn't have the, you know, the eloquent words to say in the, the speech <laughs> that's going to make everyone feel good. Um, he just, just doesn't have it right now. And that makes people even more uncomfortable because they can blatantly see, holy crap, we got a serious problem here and the president's not going to fix it. So I think it's actually kind of a good thing because it's keeping the focus on this, on the actual reforms to the system that, that need to be done. Yeah, I said that in the last episode, something similar in that the the politics of domination, which like go watch 12 Years of Sla- a, a Slave, right? That movie, which illustrates a free black man who gets sold to uh, southern plantation owners, eventually gets freed 12 years later. And you see just the... I mean, it's it's far more cruel. I mean, it's I don't want to say that because I don't want to marginalize anybody, any other community's experiences. But it is it is systemic terrorism against human beings, and it's the politics of domination. And things have gotten better over time, but idea ideologies are passed through families, like religious beliefs. And every generation has to challenge what they were taught by their parents. And some people just don't challenge their own thinking or their own beliefs. They vote Republican or Democrat because that's why their parents voted, right? And now maybe some libertarians. Uh, but then there are people like the five of us who sit there and examine every thought that we've ever had, some excruciatingly in detail. Um, but the reality is that some of that politics of domination still exists, and it's the indirect opposition to liberty, which is, it's the generational fight. It's, it's going from a monarch, a tyrant, to a free society, to opening up fully and allowing liberty to exist and saying, you know, I, you, if you want to live in a libertarian society, you will have to live with people that don't share your cultural values don't share your belief system, people that you don't like, people that find you, you find, uh, you know, immoral. 
But the reality is that some people don't like that, so they're willing to use the force of the state as a tool to control the people that they don't like. It's just the truth. And so Republicans and Democrats employ those tactics in an effort to dominate the people that they don't like. And much to what you said, Donald Trump, it it became very clear to me the breakdown when he said to governors about these Black Lives Matter protesters, you must dominate them. You must make sure that you use them as an example so this gets under control. You know, but then he soft pedals against his people when they're in the Michigan State House. You know, and, and and then everybody walks across the street and picks up the other guy's signs, you know, six months, six weeks later. Now it's six weeks, not even six months. So, yeah, it comes down to the politics of domination. And at the tip of the spear are the police, as we've mentioned in a few episodes recently. It is a matter of the police being the vanguard of the state. Every law regulation rule that is passed has to be enforced by a police officer. And so fundamentally, you have to pass less laws and elect better people. Uh, And that is a big part of the problem, is that people don't want to give up their ability to dominate other fellow citizens because they either feel that this is in my self-interest to limit competition and to enforce my beliefs on others, or they feel it is in their self-defense that they must vote a certain way. But either way, we're perpetuating a system that that continues on. Uh, so the politics of domination versus liberty is is a constant human struggle. And uh, you put it perfectly. Well, I, I think I think maybe that's that's at least for us. That's what we really focus on is that is that conflict between you know domination and liberty. But I guess my fear in this, the way that you were describing that my big concern is I could see the left. And, and I kind of gradually see them moving in this way, especially as you see a lot of the justification of the defund the police rhetoric. Um, you see that they're kind of shifting towards, well, maybe we don't need less laws. I actually saw one tweet from a, a left commentator who, who specifically said, you know, things we need to do. We need to have uh, you know, less militarization. Um, but the last thing she said was what's probably going to be the hardest is we probably need letter, less laws overall. I, I could see the left coming up with an idea of, well, maybe we don't necessarily need more true liberty. We just need gentler enforcement. You know, we, we have <laughs> the police is absolutely the end line of the government's enforcement. But I, I mean, I hear a lot of arguments that are basically saying, well, we just need to send somebody who has coercion, but not necessarily a gun. The gun really has to be a last effort. But but what could work beforehand without even reducing the laws? You know, like the idea of uh, force rehabilitation for drug users has suddenly gained momentum again because, well, that's so much better than sending a police officer is we'll just send somebody to incarcerate them in rehab. Yeah. yeah that's what that's what Joe Biden said recently. He got mm-hmm. praised for it. We just need mandatory rehab. Well, that's kind of the same thing as prison, actually. A different jail. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, and there's some some of, of the policing reforms that I've seen, you know, take that budget and use it for mental health professionals instead of cops. We, we, we view police officers as one size fits all respondents to the stuff. And, and it's unfair to them uh, to, to have to, to deal with a lot of that stuff when they're not properly equipped. I mean, I'm sure they're very nice people who are police officers, but they're not social workers, you know, and uh, some of these situations can be dangerous, but you know, I've been in situations when I went to the, to the new Orleans convention, I got, I got 
into a situation where police officers were needed because the guy had a weapon and he was hunting me and a friend, right? We were in a restaurant and he was outside. And if we came outside, it was going to be a problem. But then in Philadelphia, it was simply a matter of somebody needed to talk to that guy. Yeah, Philly. I got attacked by a homeless guy there, too. And he needed a... Really? Uh, yeah. John's from Philly. He knows. Uh, it, you're Philly, right? Not, 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 from, not from Philly, Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh but I, know, I, know Philly, I know Philly well. Same thing. You have cheese Bagel just looks like someone you want to attack. Yes, exactly. Right. Well, I'm the sucker that everybody walks up and, oh, he's nice. He'll give me $5, and I will. And uh, so that was the situation where somebody needed to talk him down a little bit. So there has to be... And the police need to be involved in the conversation from what I've seen. Many of them want to be in the conversation where it is a matter of let's decompartmentalize a lot of this stuff and stop looking at the police department as the first responder to every situation uh, and start kind of working things down a little bit. And that's a, a system of de-escalation. We talked in our other policing as episodes about de-escalation. Police officers receive hundreds of hours of training on their firearms, but dozens of hours on de-escalation, which is a, a problem. And so the, uh, the psychology of having the weaponry that they do is a big part of it, is it not, John? Yeah, I mean, this psychology comes back to what they're using. These, uh, when we talk about demilitarizing the police, and Donald Trump talks about dominating, uh, he's not talking about, uh, you know, being obviously being compassionate or persuading people. It's using using force to make people comply, scaring the crap out of people. And you know, a lot of times we've seen during these protests that a group will be protesting peacefully. Then all of a sudden the cops move in and start firing in their pepper spray bullets and roll the tanks in. And then all of a sudden chaos breaks out. They li literally start a riot that was just a peaceful protest. It's happened many times. It, isn't it weird that when people feel they're under attack, they want to fight back? I don't know what that is. Maybe that's like a deep ingrained thing that we have in us. Yeah, it's I, I suspect that if you went out to the people who were like, hey, would you move back? The president's coming through like. 99% of those people in Lafayette Square probably would have said yes, and there probably would have been a percentage that said no, and I'm going to stand my ground, I'm with the resistance. you know. But by and large, the people that were fired that got tear-gassed probably didn't deserve to be tear-gassed and would have, would have complied or would have followed direction had you, had you been a little more kind. There's 90, I came out today, 98 cities have used tear gas on their citizens, which tear gas, uh, I saw one commentator say is illegal in war. You're not allowed to use it. Yeah, there's some interesting carve outs to those war laws that specifically like this was actually, I, I was reading recently. This was a big subject of debate when they were coming up with the Geneva conventions is uh, because it, tear gas being considered a biological or a chemical weapon. That's what it is, um, is illegal in war, but it's considered acceptable to use against your own people in a lot of cases. Yeah. It's interesting that we have that double standard. So tell us a, li tell us a little bit about the Department of De Defense's 1033 program, John. Yeah, well, I'm not an expert in it, but it was, uh, you know, it started, I believe, back in the 70s. I you know, believe it, it's been a long, it's been around for a long time. And I guess the, the important thing to know is Barack Obama, President Obama actually weakened it a little bit, surprisingly enough. And as soon as Donald Trump got in power, uh, back in 2017, signed an executive order 
to make it even easier for these uh, local police departments to uh, to beef up on military equipment. Um, you know, I haven't, I don't know if you guys have had a different experience, but when I bring up demilitarizing, demilitarizing the police, and mostly it's with libertarians, but I have brought it up with Republicans and Democrats, I haven't heard a single uh, Democrat or progressive say that's a bad idea. Obviously, some re- Republicans are against it, but I don't think it's their the number one thing out of these seven that they would be against, um, especially if you talk them through it and, uh, you know, convey that really this, you know, you're not going to persuade people or, or change someone's behavior or uh, influence them by you know, shoving a boot on their throat and punching them in the face. All that's going to do is make things worse. It's, it's, it's blowback on the street. We, the CIA talks about blowback and Ron Paul famously talked about blowback. Uh, during speeches when he talks about our foreign policy and, and causing uh, terroristic attacks to come back on the United States. It's the same thing with uh, the militarization. Militarization. I'm going to get it right. I, I used to say, yeah, I used to use Canada as the example. If Canada moved in and took over the city of Indianapolis and started putting tanks on the streets and and started taking over the Indianapolis City County Council and implemented some Canadian-friendly, you know, it was a full-scale invasion they took over. Would that not bother you? And there are so many principles to to the conversation, the ways that libertarians talk about foreign policy that I see not being applied currently to what's happening with policing. And, and, and 1033 is a program where they take surplus army equipment and they give it to local police departments or give it to them cheaply. And it's and it's equipment that was used in Vietnam, the, the Gulf Wars. Afghanistan, and it's stuff that the government paid for that they don't want to just leave on the battlefield, so they bring it back. They've got nothing to do with it, and they give it to local police departments to use for SWAT teams. When I was growing up, Indianapolis had a SWAT team. There was a famous incident where Tony Kazriditz wired a shotgun, dead man's wire, to uh, Richard Hall's head and paraded him on national TV in the 70s, and it was a big deal, and that got a conversation started about SWAT teams and and how do we how do we deal with violent crime? And that kind of locally helped lead to a lot of that that stuff happening here. But now you look at it, and the city of Greenwood, in a, a few days ago, there was an errant, who knows if it was real, but it was literally just a, a Facebook post, show up to the mall in Greenwood and take what you want. Let's go, Antifa, let's do this. Well, we had one of those in my area, too. Yeah. And so what happened? Greenwood has apparently has a police helicopter. There were four MRAPs, which are like mobile armored carrier. They look like I, I say tanks as a shorthand for people who don't know what an MRAP is. And then all the military gun nerds. Hey, it's not an MRAP. I know that. But people who don't know what you're talking about don't. So it's like a large armored vehicle. And so with conservatives, you just have to show them the video from two months ago in Arizona where there was a protest at a bar where Republicans were trying to drink and they showed up with an NRAP and invaded the local bar. Like they have no compunction about using escalated force when they're dressed like a soldier walking into the battlefield in Afghanistan. When they have no MRAP, when they have no police helicopter, when they have no militarized equipment, when they have less protection, they're less likely to use force because you really have to think about what are the police? Are the police there to protect the rights of the people that are there arresting or are they there to enforce the laws by any means necessary on the population 
in a form of domination. And so those of us who are probably on this podcast looking at and, and think the first one, but then there are a lot of people who want any means necessary. It doesn't matter what the government does. Police, police have a hard job. It's very dangerous, which none of us disagree with, but that doesn't ensure that they get to roll up and just beat the hell out of us. Harry, you look like you want to say something. Uh, excuse me. Yeah. Uh, so the, also in that law, they, they are also forced to use those MRAP tanks as they have. I'm going to call them tanks because it's about everything else on the road, it's a freaking tank. Everything else is a Toyota Corolla uh, SUV, which is basically a station wagon. So to everything else that's made of aluminum around it, it's basically a tank. Yeah. The, but it's not like these small towns that have it. It's every small town has one of these things. It's not that you just think, oh, there's just these big cities like Greenwood and, and Indianapolis. No. If you don't know, you can look up the pumpkin rate uh, riot festival in Keene, New Hampshire. Yes, the little small town of Keene, New Hampshire has an MRAP. Small town Lords has an MRAP. Um, I'm, you know, it's ridiculous of how many of these we have them, and they are forced to use them because they don't use them for different stuff. They have to get rid of them, so they just use it. So they escalate things to the point so they can't use it. So they enjoy using them. So here in Indiana, so those red flag logs, they'll put pack everyone, and they'll go use them. They'll use them, and they like to show them off in parades, and they paint them all black, and they love this military pseudo-military style of that, well, those little MRAT tanks to show off because it's, it, it's to everything else around you, it's, it's intimidating. It's which is exactly what it's meant for. When everybody becomes a nail when you've got a giant hammer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you to the What's chat. What's incentives? Yeah, so ch- thanks to uh, our chat room, 1996, uh, the Congress replaced Section t- 1208 with Section 1033, which went back to the 70s and then it was passed in 97 is when this really kicked into gear uh sarah you were about to say something i cut you off i'm sorry oh yeah i'm sorry i was saying it's a matter of incentives you know i i was just thinking i think market watch put out a, a list that is six things not seven things that are very similar to your list i i I applaud you for getting ahead of the curve there as everyone throws it's out a there weak, my weak list only yeah six things and, but but i mean i they even gave a, a a, an easier to swallow version of what we're talking about here, where they talked about uh, re- dissolving SWAT teams for towns with less than a hundred thousand people, because just like you're saying, there's bad incentives there. You you have this equipment, you have to use it. So we've seen it used to be SWAT teams were only deployed for active shooter situations where everybody needs to be armored up because anybody could die at any time. Now the most common reason that uh, police departments use SWAT teams and all of this militarized equipment is for drug calls is because they've justified to themselves, well, if there's drugs, then there's got to be guns, and therefore it's just as dangerous as an active shooter situation. I mean, that's that's not necessarily the case, and that's how we end up with things like Breonna Taylor, who had a warrant served to the wrong house that it was just a, uh, it was just a drug situation, but they served that warrant with a SWAT team, and what's the outcome? You end up having one more person who dies unnecessarily. Reinhold, anything to add here before we move on to number two? Um, you know, d- d- the incentive thing is, is something that sh- that was brought up, and and that's what I try to figure out with the police is how are how are the police officers getting promoted? How are they getting um, brought into uh, saying that they deserve you know more pay and that sort of thing? So how how are they being evaluated? And when you find that the evaluation is about how many arrests you have or how many tickets you give instead of doing a good job of keeping the peace, 
right? You're going to get that type of response. You're going to get an over police state from that incentive because you're not you're not incentivizing the right thing for those police officers. All right, on to, go ahead. Speaking John. of just just one more thing on on incentives along that line. I mean, if you could trace this back to the root, who's making all of this military equipment, you know, coming from these uh, different defense contractors, the military industrial complex, um, it's just a part of the part of the cycle and pushing it back into the uh, local governments here. It just keeps keeps it pumping, keeps the money pumping. So it's, it's a stimulus program also for uh, those defense mm-hmm. contractors. Number two is decriminalize all drugs. Ending the war on drugs will significantly decrease police interactions. Give us some insight onto that, John. Yeah, you know, the, the more that I, you know, talk about just the, the culture right now and what's going on with policing right now, I think that the easiest way to explain this to people um, from, you know, not from a pure libertarian principled uh, stance, but from a, you know more of a utilitarian perspective, is that we really want to limit the amount of interactions with the police. You really can't train uh, fight or flight out of people. You can't train it out of the, the police officers and the people that they're interacting with. The you know the supposed uh, perpetrators. Um, fight or flight's going to happen. Um, people are going to are going to run away. Um, things are people are going to fight back. People are going to resist arrest if they're intoxicated or if they're upset or, or whatever happens. We want to minimize the amount of, of violence. We want the the most amount of peace possible. So taking these you know these nonviolent crimes, these victimless crimes, taking them off the books and dealing with them. You know, I talked about that. You know. And this is becoming sort of a common theme. I think the Democrats are starting to pick up on it. Obviously, libertarians have been talking about it forever. But we need to treat uh, drug addiction, drug abuse as a as a health hazard, as a, as a as a medical issue. Um, help people to get treatment. Don't force people to get treatment, like Joe Biden. But you know, we need free more free market alternatives to that. And uh, drugs being prohibited makes drug users less safe it makes their families less safe it makes everyone in the community less safe because if you have you know uh, disagreements arguments between competing drug dealers or uh, even if you want to get into sex work and things like that anything that's on the black market people can't arbitrate disputes between rival gangs or, or rival dealers by taking them to court by suing them if there's a discrepancy over money or somebody paying or something like that. So it it has a very high probability of escalating uh, to violence. And if you remove that, if you remove that prohibition, and I don't know exactly how it would work out, and I think people get very uncomfortable with that, that maybe some people are afraid that they'll start doing heroin, you know, (laughs) next week if it becomes legal. But um, the more free that you make it, when you open up the market, things will regulate themselves. And I guarantee you the public will be more safe. You look at Portugal and uh, Chile and their experiences, you see heroin usage, heroin overdoses, drug usage of all kinds. It all dramatically drops and completely changes their society. Nicholas Kristof in the New York Times wrote a beautiful article, I think it was two years ago now, about Portugal's drug laws. Uh, I'll see if I can dig that up and put that in the show notes. 
Um, I mean, Sarah, you, you mentioned earlier, this has directly impacted you. Yeah. I mean, this is, I, mine was a schedule two substance, but then we get into the issue of uh, there are prescription medications that you may not even realize, uh, carry felony sentences. If you share them with your friends, even, uh, regardless of whether or not you get paid for it, you know, these are the kinds of things that it, it actually ties a lot back to what you're talking about at the beginning that if you want to really consider the whole system, you know, think about what is the what is the original purpose behind these drug laws and what is the effect. I especially because of drug convictions um, and the difference between you've got discretion uh, along the prosecutor determining when you want to charge with a felony versus a misdemeanor. Uh, one in three uh, African Americans in the U.S. are disenfranchised because of felony convictions, mm. uh, and it's interesting that. You see a lot more misdemeanor convictions uh, with white people. So while there may be comparable uh, rates of arrest, even which there's argument over that because there's um, disparate rates of enforcement, there's uh, the issue of you keep going into the system and you still have those slight biases. And um, it, it results in how are you going to have a population that is able to exert their will uh through voting if one third of them are literally not allowed to vote. Yeah, exactly right. And the new Jim Crow book by Michelle Alexander is a great resource on this and uh, other issues of systemic problems uh, that, that kind of expand a lot on a lot of what we're talking about tonight. But uh, I forgot what I was going to say. So Reinhold, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no, Harry! You can Harry, go, go ahead. Oh, all right, all right. I, I heard. Back I, heard I heard a man try to butt in while Sarah was talking. So it wasn't me. Yeah. <laughs> the um, the one in three black on trial thing. It comes from the simple stance that a lot of since black people are a minority, even just picking out of the pool like that, you're le- you're less likely to get a black person on on the on your jury trial. So if you're trying to get judged by a jury of your peers. The likelihood that there's going to be someone who knows your experience, understands uh, what you've gone through, to actually can see themselves in your shoes when you're getting ready to be sentenced is real likely, less likely, because if your town is majority white, if they're just picking people from a pool. So you're not getting judged by a jury of your peers. So it's easy to, you know, you're going to probably going to go to jail for this, this crime. Second is the also lawyer craft is that black people don't uh, usually don't have a lot of money or resources available to um to lawyer, loyal up and have a great lawyer to be able to either plead uh, to have things go down, so they end up having to take the plea deal because the prosecutor wants convictions. So we're gonna you're gonna for, we're gonna scare you with like 30 years in jail, but we're just gonna hold you for two years if you just if you do the conviction, we'll let you out with like five years probation. So that's a lot of that aspect of which helps you discredit you from a lot of different programs like well we put all these programs in the black community so they get jobs in trade school but you can't have this you can't have that and programs that do try to get people out of those systems to help trade them they're like they don't really support those or try to put them on a conveyor belt you know? the original secretary of war henry knox weighs in here uh, from youtube and says the war on drugs is not about the drugs why are people using the drugs jobs mental health physical ailments we've made it about the drugs it's about the people and there's a great documentary that you should pay for to see if it's not i think it's free on tubi right now it's called the house i live in and it is um it 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 completely challenges every belief you've ever had about drugs if you've never thought about the war on drugs it's called the house i live in it is 
ex- it's an excellent documentary. And it talks a lot about, I think it's David Simon who wrote The Wire, Homicide Life on the Street, Treme, who basically says in it, politicians don't know what to do with the bottom 10% of the economic ladder, so they're just mm-hmm. using the war on drugs to warehouse them instead of trying to find ways to give them opportunity. And that was one of the most powerful statements I'd never had thought about from my comfortable suburban background. Uh, and it and it's very true. And, and we look at it as a criminal justice issue. And how much does the role of privatized prisons, I hear this a lot, but Sarah, maybe you can weigh in on this. Well, we've got, and they talk about in the documentary about how you have this whole, in, this whole industry of prisons in America now that you've got to feed uh, this pipeline of people that are employed by the prison system and the war on drugs, and we can't let those jobs go away, so we're just going to keep destroying communities. I mean, is that, how relevant is that? Well, I mean, to that, there's, it, it kind of goes two ways. So on the one hand, uh, there are a lot of private prison um, systems that were involved really problematically in passing a lot of the laws that get us to where we are right now. But I think when we talk about private prisons as this big boogeyman of the uh, of the criminal justice reform movement or, or even of just our justice system, it distracts from the fact that pretty much all of the bad incentives that are present for private prisons are also present for public prisons. And less than I, mean, I, I was just trying to hear Google it. But, yeah, a 0.7 percent of the United States uh, is is currently in a federal or state prison or local jail. But of the um, of the actual prisons of much minority, I want to say it's under 10 percent um, are actually private prisons. The vast mm. majority of them are, are public uh, federal prisons, federal uh, state prisons. And the majority of people are actually um, you talk about issues of bail. They're housed in, in private jails. But it all boils down to we have bad incentives that when we allow for, okay, well, we've baked all of these really bad incentives that encourage you to, uh, there's there's really no reason why uh, our prisons have any reason to provide good rehabilitation programs. Uh, there's no reason that they have to prevent recidivism because there's no reward in them for that, especially then when you go to the private sector. And the private sector is where you then have the opportunity to, we can turn a profit and now there's even more incentive for us to lobby and pass laws that bring more and more people into our prisons. Because even if it's a minority, even if it's a tiny percentage, well, we have this incentive now and it proliferates into the entire system. So you have laws that are passed that, you know, mandatory minimums, things that increase the not only the likelihood that people will be convicted, but the time then that they serve once they're actually in. Because for that small minority, yes, it makes money for the private prison industry, but most of the public prisons now you're talking about prison labor and contracting with companies i mean mm-hmm. that is a whole other section where you're getting to questioning whether or not we've really completely abolished the concept of slavery in the united states or if we're really just making the best use of that loophole in the 13th amendment well that's a charged accusation i mean so explain a little bit more of what you mean because i'm sure there are a lot of people who just heard that and went oh this this sarah's out of her mind so the 13th Amendment is we know of it as, as the amendment that it made slavery illegal. But if you actually read the text of the amendment, it doesn't completely make slavery illegal. Um, it makes it illegal except for when it is a 
punishment for crime. Uh, it specifically says, except as a punishment for crime where the party shall have been duly convicted, which connects back to that issue of fair representation and uh, being judged by a jury of your peers. You bake into the system that, well, if we can convict, if we can pass more laws that and we can convict more people, we don't actually have to give up this cheap labor. Um, a lot of the state prisons, not only do they have prison jobs that sustain the prison industry itself. So a lot of prisons have farms associated with them. The, the inmates not only um, manage just the, the management labor, you know, laundry and um, like cleaning and things, but they also uh, actually pick their own food that then sometimes is sold to um, to county uh, schools and it, it provides beyond that they often contract out to private industry uh, and this has caused some issues for some uh, private companies because when it becomes very public that they're using inmate labor that they only have to pay at a rate of usually less than two dollars a day yep. um mm -hmm. People don't really like that idea because they go, hey, that that seems suspiciously like slavery because we we put this loophole in the 13th Amendment that says, oh, I mean, that's OK if that's the way we want to play it out. Yeah. And a lot of people and a lot of what that documentary challenges, oh, they're just criminals. I'll put on my best John Stossel hat. Mm -hmm. I mean, aren't we just helping them gain a sense of purpose? I visited a prison once, and it was a rehabilitation facility. So these men and women haven't, have been in the prison system for 20 years and have no idea how to balance a checkbook and no idea how to keep a job. Aren't we helping them by giving them a sense of purpose? Well, sometimes John Stossel them, makes me so mad. <laughs> sometimes we're training them for jobs that then when we actually reintroduce them into society, because let's let's not forget, 95 percent of people who are incarcerated will at some point be released and reintroduced into society. Sometimes we train them for jobs that they're not even able to be licensed for afterwards. My my favorite example is in California. Uh, when California has wildfires, they mm -hmm. send out inmates to uh, fight their wildfires. It's a dangerous job. They train them for it. But then when they are actually released, they can't get licensed as firefighters in, in California to to do that, you know, just for the public because of the licensing laws around that that say you can't do that if you're a convicted felon. Hmm. And that and that says a couple of things there, specifically that uh, fighting wildfires example, because I've brought that up and I've had a pushback on that also from inmates pushing back on it just because they wanted to get out of the prisons. You know, they didn't mind that they were only getting, you know, two dollars, three dollars an hour. They just loved that they could, you know, get outside and, and do something even mm -hmm. if they're risking their life. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it doesn't that say something about how bad the prisons are, which brings, was, you know, <laughs> which, 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 bring, which mm -hmm. brings up, you know, uh, this whole, uh, this whole uh, collective thought in the United States that prison shouldn't be good. It should be horrible. People get raped. They should get raped. Oh, they're uh, in prison. That's what you're in prison for. It's like, it's no, actually that's not what you're in prison for. You're in prison uh, to get, you know, corrected and to, uh, when you come back out into society, to actually be able to add some value and, you know, not be a, you know, not be a hazard to public safety, things like that. But just one thing, I, and Sarah, I think you're hitting the nail on the head here by distinguishing between uh, private prisons and private enterprise profiting off any type of prison, because I mean, that's, that that's the big deal. I think the private prison thing, I, private public, it, it's still prison. People are, you know, it's, People are, they're, it's not doing its, its purpose. And I did find this, uh, this list here of 13 things made in um, prisons. And it's from their very reputable site, thrillist.com. So you know it's true. Uh, protective military equipment, law enforcement equipment, McDonald's uniforms, furniture, 
Microsoft packaging, Honda car parts, Victoria's Secret lingerie, dentures, J.C. Penney's blue jeans, and uh, all of their own stuff. As you were saying, you're going to tell me they make those call centers and oh. Starbucks packaging and uh, processed meat as well. They're going to make those poor guys put together panties and bras. That is outrageous and cruel. Um, <laughs> and the thing, go ahead. The right thing now. about the private versus uh, public thing I wanted to bring up too is that private privatization of the of the prison systems is kind of a, a recently a, a recent thing you know a fairly new thing mm-hmm. um our our incarceration rate has been the highest of any country by far for a lot longer than we've had to deal with private prisons right it, it the problem isn't the private prisons private prisons don't help the, there's a lot of different um problems as, as we've already talked about but um trying trying to lay it all at the feet of uh, private prisons, I think, is is kind of missing the forest for the trees. Uh, finally, we got to, and it's my fault for not managing the conversation a little better. But we got to end by eight because John has to do. I'm God knows what, probably something illegal. Considering after this conversation, all I've heard is how much he loves crime. Uh, so number three is ending mandatory occupational licensing. Why is this important, John? I talked about this one a little bit earlier, so I'll uh, I'll just say, you know, I'll just kind of restate what I said. And, you know, there, there was a, what comes to mind first is this thing that happened in Florida, I think of February of this year, where uh, police there were, were calling handymen. And uh, these handymen were coming. Some of them were licensed to do either electrical work or do carpentry. And, uh, you know, one of them would be doing some, you know, plumbing or electrical work and they'll say, hey, can you come over and can you, uh, you know, do this job over here, too, that they're not licensed for? And when they'll start doing it, bam, under arrest. It was something crazy, like 150 people that they got through that. But on top of that, as, as Harry talked about earlier, I mean, this is one of the things that it really holds people down and it stops people from developing skills and adding value uh, to society in you know, a question that Joe Jorgensen was asked recently on the Lines of Liberty podcast, actually one of, one of my coworkers gave me the question to pass on to Mark and it was talking about um, single mothers and uh, single mothers who, you know, are kind of, you know, stuck and not able to advance and maybe they don't have the, the education or the training or the skills to, you know, really go out and get a job to, to support their kids. And the question was, how are people like that in a society that a Joe Jorgensen or a libertarian is advocating for, how are they supposed to compete? How are they supposed to you know, p- provide for their family without the government safety net? And she answered it beautifully by talking about occupational licensing. You know, people have all these skills they can use. They can do hair. They can do nails. They can, you know, they can uh, build websites. Do They can code. <laughs> people can learn to code. And uh, it's it's just not that you license to code, do you? Well, not yet. But uh, it's just putting a uh, another obstacle in front of people really reaching their uh, purpose. Forcing people to pass a test to code sounds like something Harry would want, to be honest with you. What were you going to say, Sarah? I, I love your, your single mother example because what comes to mind for me is I know a lot of single moms who ran illegal daycares because there were licensing requirements that if you were going to care for more than a certain amount of kids in your home – you had to, you know, pay for a state licensure, invite the state into, you know, look through your house and make sure that it's a place that you're allowed to have kids. Uh, where I know a lot of single moms who, who 
have young kids who say, well, the thing that makes the most sense to me is I can care for my child and other people's children, allow them to go to work. But, oh, well, I can only care for two kids that aren't mine before I have to go get a state license. Have you ever walked into a barbershop or even a doctor's office and looked at their state license and made your decision based on that? Or do you go on the person that you've been you've been recommended? You have somebody who has, you know, like an Angie's List type situation where there's some, you know, conversation around that person. And so therefore they cut hair well or they are a good doctor like it's about experience and education. It has nothing to do with the tax that they force you to. And and the other part of this, which I had never thought about, you know, it playing into decreasing access to the marketplace in the way that you guys are talking about it. You know, I've always looked at it as a liberty issue at less, more as a moral issue, less as a utilitarian argument. Um, You look at the, the people that have just lost their livelihood. I read an article about one barber who didn't follow the rules in his town and they removed his license at, at the state board. And so now he can no longer run his barbershop because he didn't follow the COVID-19 rules. It's occupational licensing is nothing you and I use to make decisions on. And it's everything they use to control the population that they have a power over. It is a tool of domination. And so if you want voluntary, peaceful cooperation, this is certainly something that we need to end. Um, Harry, Reinhold, any thoughts before we move to four? No, I think you got it. Thank you. Pretty nailed down there. Yeah, it's number four. Brianna Taylor is uh, obviously, and Duncan Limp has have been in the news and talked about widely. There was also an, a horrific article about a no knock raid gone wrong where. Uh, I believe in the last episode it was mentioned where the a flashbang was thrown into a baby's crib and disfigured the child. Uh, what is a no-knock raid and why should we ban them? Let's start with Sarah. Well, a no-knock raid is exactly what it sounds like. It's uh, a warrant that allows a police officer to serve a warrant without actually having to knock, without having to notify the individual that they're serving the warrant on, that they're uh, arriving and that they're police. Uh, it, you get to completely ignore private property and uh, they're allowed to break down your door and come in. And, you know, in the examples that you talked about, Brianna Taylor is a, a blaring example of she wasn't even at the address they were intending to serve the warrant on. It was it was a mistake and she died. But her boyfriend was charged with attempted murder because when you have plainclothes police who show up, serve a no knock warrant. If you have people who do not have police officer uniforms on who break into your home and have guns if you have access to guns is that not exactly the situation that you have them for yes well in this case a no-knock raid because they had permission from the state uh her her boyfriend who shot back uh, and and just injured one of the police officers um he was charged with attempted murder of an officer um because he was the one who didn't have permission to be in his own home i guess is the implication of that situation Uh, When we have these no-knock raids, we're saying not only do you have legal authority to go in and uh, arrest this person or go in and search this home, you have the legal authority to completely ignore their property ownership to begin with. Just go in, guns blazing, no problem. And I mean, I would hope that for a lot of our listeners, the reason why we wouldn't want to have that continued, especially the level that it's used now, frequently for for drug-related incidents why we wouldn't want to have that because it increases the chances that people die. 
when you surprise people, they're more likely to go into that fight or flight, just like uh, Harry was talking about. You you can't you can't expect people who especially don't know that they're dealing with law enforcement to react as though they do and to completely immediately become compliant. Yeah, people tend to get touchy when you show up with guns at their house in the middle of the night and they don't know Crazy who night. you are. Yeah, it's really, really wild. And this is this is incredibly dangerous for police officers, as you said. You know, if you're pro-law enforcement, there's no reason to keep this. Every every police officer friend that I've ever had, their worst stories come from no-knock raids and, and serving these kind of warrants. Uh, and they're increasingly used, especially since they have the, the 1033 um, system and they have the ability to do the things that they're doing. And so, you know, trying to take people by surprise at their weak moment, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's a terrible system and needs to come to an end because it's dangerous for everybody. And it is, the reality is that we've let ourselves put police officers into a special class of citizen, which we'll talk about under qualified immunity. We have used the concept of patriotism to bamboozle the population into thinking that they are more deserving of rights than quote-unquote criminals. It's propaganda. The state has a duty to protect the rights of the people that they are serving. And so these no-knock raids are antithetical in my mind to everything that this country was founded on in that you have a right to face your accusers. Breonna Taylor doesn't have that right. I mean, if you went to tea parties and you read the Breonna Taylor story and you think long and hard enough about what justice means and law and order means, the Breonna Taylor story completely, there's no way that anybody can look at that if they want to pay attention to it and look at it and be okay with that story, for instance. It's, but we want to let a politician like Donald Trump use the law and order propaganda to get us to not look at it, to not think about it, to look away from this tragedy and continue a system that is killing people like her. So it, it, it's about government power, and this is, this is one of their tools. Uh, any other thoughts before I move on to number five? I just want to uh, agree with you there that the, the, it, the, really the pro-police position in this is, is a pro-reform position. Yeah. That if you want to be able to put in better incentives that you don't put police officers in bad situations where they are encouraged to make bad calls, well, then we have a bunch of reform to be done. Reinhold? And how, right, how, how, hip, how hypocritical is it, too, that the, the, the police are always saying that, you know, I feared for my life, I didn't know what was happening, um, I had to make split-second decisions and defend myself so I could come home alive. Aren't aren't the people in their own home kind of expecting that same level of protect, you know, feeling of security or, or being able to make a decision to protect, protect themselves? I mean, it just seems very hypocritical to me that on one hand they're saying one thing and then not take, giving that to the other people who aren't trained. Right. You know, human, you're just at home watching TV. You're not trained to deal with someone breaking into your house and having to make that split decision on oh, are, these, are these police or are they criminals? Yeah, right. Correct. Yeah. And this is residential neighborhoods that they're, a lot of the time this is happening in. So it, it, let's say even if they got the right address and a shootout started, your kids could be playing in the front yard or just have the house next door, and, you know, and then stray bullets because bullets go through walls. It's what you're taught mm -hmm. in gun training. You know what's behind your target before you shoot. But the, none of this happens. This is why we see also there's no not grades of them shooting dogs, the bullets ricocheting, hitting other people in the house. And that's a lot of the other people can do get shot. 
know, this is residence. This is where people are living at. So, and it usually stems from the drug war. I mean, that's yeah. seriously a, a fruit of the poisonous tree type situation. Uh, number five is end qualified immunity. Uh, this is something that Justin Amash got a big splash on. And it plays into the, the idea of a special class of citizens. What is qualified immunity, John? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's something that I just learned of in the past couple of years. You know, it's not something you hear talked about a lot. I mean, Justin Amash is one of the first politicians that I've heard actually bring up ending it. Um, but essentially what it is, is police can only be sued um, if their actions violate clearly established federal law or constitutional rights. And, you know, there's a couple examples of this that, that I've talked about before. There was um, a woman who um, her, her boyfriend or ex-boyfriend was on the run from police and he was holed up in her house and she gave permission to, uh, you know, to raid the house, gave the keys. You know, they could have just gone in the front door, but instead they launched a bunch of, uh, you know, flashbang grenades in, totally, you know, damaged the house and, uh, can she sue? No, can't do anything. Another one where um, cops were uh, pursuing uh, a perpetrator and there were some kids playing in the front yard as the, the, you know, the path that they were going on. They told the kids to all kneel down or lay down in the yard, shot the dog that was there because, you know, why not shoot the dog? And while shooting the dog also shot one of the, uh, the kids in the knee. Thank God only shot him in the knee, but qualified immunity. And I think 50 of the time that qualified immunity is used as a defense, uh, the cop gets off. It happens in college, too. I read an article this week about how colleges have qualified immunity in a lot of cases, too. So if they restrict a First Amendment situation and a student's uh, First Amendment rights are violated, then they can't get restitution for that that violation because of qualified immunity. Uh, but Sarah, putting on my John Stossel hat again, if you end qualified immunity, then you open up Pandora's box because all of a sudden everybody gets sued and it creates a ton of lawsuits. And does the police officer have to pay for that lawsuit? Does the does the the city pay for it? They're acting on the orders of the city. I mean, how can you end qualified immunity? Because isn't this system fundamentally fair to government employees well so i i've I've talked about recently that that qualified immunity we have i keep seeing this conflation with qualified immunity saying that it protects police officers from criminal charges it doesn't it protects police officers from being sued and when you have this dual uh situation where the thing that protects police officers from being criminally charged when they are criminally negligent or when they are engaging in criminal activities is the criminal justice system itself. It's the prosecutors. The police won't arrest their own. The prosecutors won't charge the police officers. So that's what keeps them from being criminally prosecuted. But on top of that, then you have civil, um, you have this, the qualified immunity keeps them from being sued in civil court. So if, you know, even if you are not found criminally guilty of something, I can still sue you for harming me if I can prove material harm in civil court, except you can't do that with police officers. And it's I, I I smiled there and it was interesting that this the statistic you gave is that the majority of the time it works. But it's another one of those kind of like shadow statistics that gets ignored, kind of like within prosecutions. We say 95 uh, 
percent or 98% of um of convictions don't actually come from trials. They come from plea uh, plea bargains because if you put enough pressure on somebody, then they don't even bother taking it to trial. And in this situation, well, if you make it very clear that, well, qualified immunity exists, you're going to lose. A lot of people don't even bother bringing their suits because they know, why am I going to spend money, uh, my own money, trying to bring it to court uh, when I know that majority of the time it's just going to be said, well, that was part of the job. There's there's really nothing here. Civil and, it, it's civil liberty. Let me add on to that quickly. Civil liberty suits are very complicated, very difficult, mm-hmm. and very narrow, and there are not a lot of attorneys who will actually take those on because yeah. there is I mean, no, the, there's no industry for it. The differentiation between when they say it has to be a clearly established right is I – can't, I can't remember the citation, but there was one case in which someone uh, – an officer was granted qualified immunity because they determined that like loosing a dog on someone in a canyon is not the same as – as loosing a dog on someone in a ravine <laughs> and i mean there yeah there were literally like this was still a situation of a, an officer of the state let loose a dog on an innocent subject and ended up maiming them but mm-hmm. well it wasn't quite exactly the same situation so it's really not an established right uh and when we when we actually try and and deal with that through legislation because the supreme court has completely decided that they're 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 not interested. They chose recently not to take it up as an issue. It has to be fixed through legislation uh, because it shifts those incentives so much. I mean, one of the arguments that you hear for why we shouldn't touch qualified immunity is, well, how would you get any co- any officer to take the job? Um, but I think a great example of how just that shift causes a real change is is you look at the Buffalo Police Department. Um, Recently, this was just their union deciding not to give them backing. This wasn't even full qualified immunity. But um, I, I know a lot of us shared around an article where there were two police officers who were suspended from the Buffalo Police uh, Department uh, after they one of them shoved a, a 75-year-old man and, and ignored his injuries in a protest situation. Um, and the article that got shared around a lot was one that said, Oh, well, this is proof that there's, you know, it's systemic. There's rotten to the core because the 57, I think it was, other officers who were on the same squad uh, quit that assignment. They said, we are not going to be part of your protest crew anymore. We're not going to go out and and quell civil unrest because that was what the special squad had been put together for. And it was put out there that, oh, well, this is just proof that they're bad. But in reality, what happened was their union put out a statement to them saying, hey, you know what? If this is the way that the city is going to act we can't afford to defend you guys anymore. So if you are brought up on charges or if you are sued for your actions coming out of these protests, then you're on your own. And the officers said, that's not worth the risk for me. Yeah. And they quit that assignment. They didn't quit their jobs, but they said, we're not going to go out and try and, you know, quell civil unrest if we are personally going to be held liable for our actions, because on some level they know this is too risky. There is too high of a chance that I'm going to violate someone's civil rights or I'm going to hurt someone. And if I'm going to actually face the chance of being held liable for that, I'm not going to do it. How is that a bad thing? Isn't I mean, that's, that that's just weird? Way they're union backing. But when we're talking about qualified immunity, we're taking away their complete immunity. And we're saying, hey, if you mess up, you might be responsible and see how that changes the incentives. Reinhold, weren't you saying that? You're muted. Oh, Sorry, thank you. <laughs> now you did it. You yeah. Did it. <laughs> uh, 
isn't I'm just used to, I I'm used to having the privilege of talking all the time. Um it, Reinhold, isn't it weird? Weren't you the one who said that incentives matter? I know Sarah said it too and if there's consequences to certain decisions, I mean, but in, in the in the situation of policing, split second second decisions of life or death isn't that worth having qualified immunity? Isn't it worthy isn't it worth reducing some of those incentives and consequences because they're acting in our behalf. And I don't think that you can say that they're acting in our behalf in, in those situations when they, when they know that they don't have to think about the result of that action, it changes the calculation you're making in that action. Right. So if you're um, like, how many times we see police go up and then a dog comes running at them and they'll just pull the gun out and shoot it, right? They don't uh, have to worry about the consequence of that action that they're taking. So they're going to take the more uh, protect myself at, at any cost mm-hmm. so, you know, re- choice because there's no negative to it. Mm-hmm. So when we're dealing with people, when we're, humans are interacting with each other, you have to start making better decisions on on how you interact, how you um approach people how how you try to calm down the situation if there's no incentive to do any of that then that change like i said it changes the calculation that you're making and you're just going to uh go one way full to protect yourself and not worry about what happens to anybody else mm-hmm. and those other people are human beings that have rights they have lives you can't just remove them from that calculation and I think that's what that does when you when you take away the uh, qualified immunity. Now, th- the other thing about that is, as I understand that the qualified immunity came from a Supreme Court decision. It's not a it's not any legislature that has put it in. Right. Yeah. So that's something that the way only way to fix it, because the Supreme Court won't look at it now, is through legislation. Um, and yeah. taking qualified immunity away doesn't mean that police are going to get sued for every little thing like this, this this police officer said something bad to me, I'm going to sue them, you know? So it's not going to be a constant spate of lawsuits because it doesn't protect that. It just protects a specific subset of things that they could be sued for. I think a lot of people get scared about the, uh, well, if you're going to take away their immunity, then, you know, they're going to be sitting in court all the time for all the multiple lawsuits we have in a litigious country like we do. And uh, as I understand it, that's not what would happen with, with that being taken care of yeah and if you have a cop that is sitting in the law in in the courtroom all the time for these logistics lawsuits maybe there's something actually is wrong with this person you know maybe they should probably be let go get rid of the bad ones well well qualified immunity wouldn't be such a big problem if the police departments and the law enforcement were, were better at policing their own essentially i mean if if police officers were brought up on criminal charges for criminal behavior then you wouldn't have this issue of, but we need some way to enforce accountability outside of the criminal justice system because the criminal justice system would already be handling it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And police unions too. They, when, when, so you know how, like when the, uh, the Catholic priests, when they would get uh, accusations of misconduct, they would quietly put those, you know, transfer that person to another department, another area and hide it away. Well, the, the police, Unions do the same thing. You know, if, if somebody's got 12 or 14 incidents 
uh, and they want to get rid of them, what they do is they transform some transform somewhere else. The the union uh, buries it, and they go there with a clean, uh, fresh slate, right? So you 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 have no way of knowing who these actors are going through the system back and forth. As I understand it, the uh, the person who uh, was responsible for the Houston couple getting um, killed by the police was also involved in a Floyd uh, arrest, right? So he, he had a history of lying and that he, he had lied in that situation as well too, in order to get a, an arrest. So these people, they, the, the bad police, if there, if there's a smaller number of them, then the, the whole, you know, it's just a few bad apples type of, of <laughs> statement. Uh, those bad apples are floating around in the system and you can't find them. Right. You know, Talking about incentives. Well, and the phrase is a few bad apples spoils the bunch. Yeah, you want to incentivize the the police officers to yeah to to throw the bad apples out so they don't uh, tarnish their name or harm their you know have money taken out of their own pocketbooks. Yeah, the retirements. All right, let's move on to to number six. That's that is one of the. um... Go ahead, sir. See, that is one of the reform suggestions. Is is if even if you're not going to completely eliminate. Um, any sort of civil asset, maybe at least make it so that the settlements of um, wh- what can happen right now is people can sue the city. So they can't sue individual police officers. They have to sue the city. And the idea is if you hold the city accountable, well, then the city will hold the police officers accountable. But the city pays that money out of taxpayer funds. There's no actual immediate connection to the police officers. So one of the simplest things that you can do is is tie those funds to the police officers. Make sure that any any um, funds that have to be paid out to victims of police violence are paid out of either uh, pension funds or restitution or um, sorry, not restitution. They're, they're paid out of pension funds or salary pools uh, for police officers. I mean, imagine how much better our uh, policing system would be if their ability to get a raise was based on them not having any lawsuits that they had to pay out. And that is number six, which is stop using taxpayer funds to pay victims of police brutality. Mandate that lawsuits filed against police departments or officers are paid out either by police held insurance policies or pension funds. And I've I've heard in other place in other places than Indianapolis, because in the Hoosier mind, this is the only place that exists, uh, that tying it to making officers carry insurance changes behavior Big time. Have you guys heard examples of that? You're shaking oh, yeah. your head, Sarah. Yeah, I, I was just Googling to try and pull up a specific example, but I, I have seen in several instances the the way that it shifts the incentives is really simple. It's that now you've introduced a, a private uh, party that's holding those police accountable. They're saying instead of just paying this out of an endless taxpayer amount, um, we're going to have an insurance company that comes in. And you know what? They've got their own incentives. Their incentive is to make sure that they have to pay out as little as possible. So they come in with their uh, officer tests and and their assessments of your department, and they're going to go, we're going to go ahead and comb through and see what your risk level is. And once they're done, if it turns out that actually you're going to be really expensive to insure (laughs) because you've got a history of issues with police violence, there have been cases where municipal uh, police departments get so problematic and so corrupt that they price themselves out of insurance. Yeah, I mean, and they end up having to dissolve just for that reason, because they can't exist without insurance. The officer that that killed George Floyd, Derek, was it Chauvin, had mm-hmm. a horrendous record. I mean, dozens of complaints, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so, I mean, he's he's a guy that wouldn't be training other officers 
if he even could get a job if you were under the system. Yeah. It's it's really interesting to see how how they kind of shift around the responsibility. And if we can just focus on on where are the incentives, where are we focusing the responsibility for this bad behavior, if we can actually put it where it's intended, we might actually be able to see some action. Yep. Other thoughts on this? Yeah, just bring some bring some market forces into into policing. You know, it's it's not that different from uh, you know if, if you have a job and your your coworkers, you have five or six coworkers that you work closely with, and two of them are always slacking off and looking at Facebook or Instagram during work, and they're you know getting paid as much or, or more than you. Um, you know, not that you're going to go tattle on them or you know something like that. I'm not advocating uh, not advocating doing that, but um, it, it's it's going to it's going to throw off the system. You know th- that bad apple might actually drag down you to work a little less. Oh, they're on Facebook all day. I'm going to look at Facebook a little bit more. Um, it's it's the same thing with policing. If you have people who are being permitted to you know to abuse their power, you know, and, and it goes by unchecked, and they don't get damaged financially or or personally or criminally, then you might start thinking, well, uh, then I can start doing some of those same things too. Um, so it's just, you know, let, let the market start to regulate policing a little bit. Well, the market will price people out. I know we, I, I don't have, I, I wanted to say we all know somebody, but I'm like, I don't know. It's actually kind of rare. Maybe you don't, but <laughs> we, we maybe have met somebody at some point who's priced themselves out of car insurance. Uh-huh. And I know a lot of, a lot of States have, you know, a, a state underwriter who will guarantee that you can get car insurance, but it can get very expensive that if you have been in several accidents, if you've been a very expensive driver and you've proven that actually you're going to get into a lot of very expensive accidents, then your insurance company is absolutely justified in raising your rates. Uh, I was I was just looking well while we were talking and Sacramento is a great example in, in California of a city who they didn't have uh, insurance just on their police department, but they had citywide insurance. So instead of paying the uh, money out of their taxpayer funds, they paid it out of uh, the city itself had insurance, which would cover any sort of malpractice police from the EMTs, whatever, anything that was under the city's um, jurisdiction, it would cover. And they had in one year, because of the amount of police brutality lawsuits they had, their insurance doubled. And when you have that kind of sudden jump in, in the amount that the city has to pay, that's a simple way that it incentivizes the city to go, whoa, why are we suddenly paying twice as much in their insurance? Oh, it's our police department. That's somewhere we really need to focus because they're just making it expensive for the rest of us. Exactly. All right. All right. I was just pausing for dramatic effect to see if anybody else would like to get in there. And that brings us to our final point of just seven there's many, many more reforms and abolishments that we ought to make, but these are the ones we ought to do. We ought to demand they do it right now. And number seven is something libertarians, first time I ever heard about it was from libertarians. They've beat this drum for a long time. Reason Magazine especially. It's incredibly important, and it is ending civil asset forfeiture. It's one of the most outrageous practices that the government takes on uh, Reinhold, would you like to explain civil asset forfeiture? Uh, civil asset forfeiture is legalized theft. So, <laughs> so basically, the the theory behind it Whee! is that it, I, it originally came out of trying to combat um, 
organized crime. So the idea was that if you're, you know, somebody who's an organized crime and we try to arrest you, you, you can pay people off and lawyer up really good. So you spend all this money that you've gotten ill-gotten gains, as it were, you know, gotten supposedly illegally to protect yourself from any kind of punishment. So the, the theory was, well, we'll, we'll, we'll take their assets away from them so that then they have to kind of play on a similar field. Um, and then it was, um, later kind of extend out to drug users, right? Just drug dealers, drug, uh, the people who do the um, supplying of, of the drugs. So that's kind of the, the, the thought process behind it. But what it's turned into is if you're arrested for any reason, um, you can have your assets taken, like your car that you were in when you were arrested can be taken. Your, your property, your boats, your house, all these things can be taken from you. And even if you are not even eventually charged or the charges are dropped or you're found innocent, you don't get those back. They Mm -hmm. take them. It's an incentive for police to go out and try to find more and more and more crime because they're getting those assets and then they're selling them off at auction. And that's how they're funding all the, uh, the extra militarized weapons they want to buy and all the, all the uh, protections from the lawsuits and everything that they're doing. So, that's really what it's turned into away from what it was originally thought to be for. Go ahead, yeah. Sarah. You just assume I'm going to talk. I know I can see. Uh, you, I know I've done enough shows with you. I know you've got something to say here. I was just thinking that the best way I've ever heard that put is, is it's supposed to be that you can take anything that looks suspicious, but wouldn't a lot of things look suspicious if you could use them to buy a margarita machine for your break room? <laughs> When you need the margarita machine. Indeed. Well, there's no accountability in, in the way that these funds are spent a lot of times. I mean, I know I know my state, North Carolina, is actually supposedly pretty good on civil asset forfeiture. We only have criminal asset forfeiture, which at least means you have to be convicted before the state will take your stuff, but the feds will still do it. <laughs> um, but even then, unless it's an actual cash claim, so which happens shockingly often, you know, people in states where civil asset forfeiture is still a part of state law will be stopped in in just a regular, even routine traffic stop. And it's like, oh, you got a couple hundred dollars in cash on you. That seems really suspicious. I suspect that was drug money. I'm just going to go ahead and take it. I remember uh, in 2017, the average uh, nationwide, the average amount of asset forfeiture was $300. Hmm. So between cash and property that was seized, the average, so that's even including the outliers, was $300. So imagine how many amounts of small cash were they were they taking off of people mm-hmm. um, just oftentimes in order to to fund police departments. Sometimes, once again, it's bad incentives. You've got uh, police departments who are intentionally underfunded and then told, well, you have access to asset forfeiture. Um, make up your budget. You know, and that's how much more of a perverse incentive can we get? There was a, a case a case recently in Pittsburgh at the Pittsburgh airport that a woman who lived in Boston came into Pittsburgh to visit her uh, elderly father. And uh, he had saved up all this cash over time, had it in his house. And, you know, he's getting up there in years and he, he wanted to at least you know, put it in a bank, probably so he could put it in a will and you know, transfer it later. And of course, you know, ideally you don't want to carry around that much money, but this woman was just going to take it, you know, back to Boston and deposit it in a bank and, and get, and get that working. And going through the Pittsburgh airport, they found the money. It was, I don't know, we'll say $15,000, $20,000 and just took it. 
because <laughs> they alleged it could be involved in a crime. Luckily, she was able to get it back. It took like, I want to say six or eight months, mm-hmm. but she was able to get the money back. It, so I actually remember that case. Yeah. It, it was $50,000 and she ended up spending $15,000 in order to get it back. Wow. Worst part to me, as someone who, who until, you know, before COVID, frequently fly, um, was she actually called up TSA. She called the airport to make sure, like, hey, I'm flying with a large amount of cash. Is this illegal? Is this a problem? How do I need to carry it? They said, not a problem at all. Just let us know when you come through. We'll scan it. No issue. I, how ridiculous is it that you can make you can call up, make sure to, to do everything right, and then still, when it actually comes down to it, they can go, actually... This looks really suspicious now that I'm looking at it in person. All this cash that I get yeah, to. Well, it probably wrote down her name. So fifty thousand. Mm-hmm. What's your name again? Is, yeah. is, there a, is that when on your it, license when's too? Your or Sounds like somebody needs to watch Ozark. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> Harry. Oh, like uh, the civil aspect, unfortunately, that's how people they, they collect cars. Uh, it's not just cash; it is cars. The other thing is about the black community because a lot of people have a lot of people in the black community also have a lot of distrust of banks and don't mm-hmm. have a lot of the cash in banks. So a lot of it is cash transacted. So when you're trying to bring cash to different people, you end up having to like hide it on your car or something like that because if you do get pulled over, they're going to take that large amount of cash or assume it is for drug uses, and then all your shit going stuck on the side of the road as you wait for the drug dog, which don't get me started on like while well, the drug why well, drug dog sniff test is such bull crap. Yeah. Oh here. Signal here. Yeah, signal here. Yeah, this is my dog that I've trained and I can tell you what its signals are. <laughs> yeah, the amount of the amount of videos where you see just a, a casual like they literally I, it amazes me they'll look away and they'll like tap and then suddenly the mm-hmm. dog will will signal exactly where they tap and they'd be like, Oh, all right, there you go. Probable cause. Probable cause. We got it. Yep. I, I yep. didn't see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is like which is which is bullcrap. That like yes, dogs' olfactory noses are very very powerful. But how many cars can that dog sniff before it a it gets tired and b and b with all those cars and cars whizzing by you that the dog's nose is rendered ineffective. Mm-hmm. And dogs I mean, have bad on. days too, right? People have bad days. Dogs have bad days. They don't want to work. Maybe they're tired. They didn't get a good night's sleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the I want to be-, be a dog. You fake news propagandist. I would love to be a dog. These, oh, what a life that dogs have. Coming from the cat owner. Yeah. Cats have it hard. They have to earn their affection. So, uh, all right, guys. Any final thoughts on that before we move to, to wrapping up? And, John, feel free to drop off if and when you need to go. I'm good for a little bit more. Okay. Uh, all right. Final thoughts on these seven reforms or anything else that people ought to take a look at. Let's start with, uh, let's start with seniority. Let's go with Harry first. Show them how it's done. All right. One thing I would want to bring back is I'm going to, you know, tell back to the first part is I am also too also glad that, Trump is president right now because he cannot save those messages that calm everybody. Two, it's got a lot of people who weren't paying attention actually paying attention right now. I I'm frustrated that this is what's made them pay attention, but it's great because now I can go back and grab all these articles and all these news sources that has happened over the years and be like, see, this has happened, this has happened here, this has happened here. Thank you for now paying attention. I think I was sharing the article around about the Chicago Police Department having the black site. And I'm like, and we barely knew about that black site back in 2015, only because protesters were disappearing. Yeah. And I was t- I was sending it around to them be like, watch your 
protesters. If you're out there protesting, keep track of your people. Find out. Make sure your group gets home at night. You know, make sure. I remember you there. saying that, and I was like, "There's no way, Harry. They have a black site." And then you showed me the article. And mm-hmm. it, what is the black site in Chicago? Give us just a smidge more detail there. Chicago. They found out this black site because they were basically taking people to a site that's ha- uh, that's off the books, off the record, and it's a, basically a jail cell. And they, we already knew about it because a lawyer, someone actually had enough money to buy a lawyer, and they couldn't find him in the system. They knew he was booked. They knew, but they couldn't tell where he was. Uh. <laughs> so the only way they found out of it because they accidentally arrested somebody who had money. Ooh, Ooh, surprising. And this is and that's Chicago. Like, so how many other people that do get arrested around this country, especially at protests, get taken to these pseudo black sites around there and just get disappeared or just held on to until the protests die down and then released? And they think they've been in jail because you don't know any better. You know, because the, the everyone also buys into the myth of the phone call. You do not get a phone call when you get arrested. They can't allow you to have mm-hmm. what they want to, but that is a myth, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, so I also tell people just like this is the time to all those old articles that you have and saved up and you've been just you you because you know about these stories. People are paying attention now. Now is the time to, set the, to you know send it out there and just show people like uh, like I was talking about the seven year old who got burnt by the flash grenade. You know, this is she, this. It's just sad that all these stories have lined up and no one really was paying attention. And now they are, which share them send it send it to people they'll read them now you know and just just have to be like hey this is old this is when you weren't paying attention let's give john the final the next final thought and shameless self-promotion time uh, in case he needs to go so go ahead john yeah i'd like to announce that i am uh ending my contract with lions of liberty and signing with and i'm just kidding excellent <laughs> you're taking your talents to south beach indiana one more victory for the wall network that's right yes. mm-hmm. Uh, no, it's just awesome, awesome to be on the show. Great conversation, you know, great getting to uh, spend some time with you guys today. And you know, the one of the reasons that I did write these uh, seven essential reforms, seven common sense reforms. Let's turn it around on the uh, on the gun grabbers. These are common sense; they should happen. Let's demand they happen. Um, is you know, people are interested, and you know, I, I definitely agree with you, Harry. Now is the time to to reach out to people, have conversations, people share these stories that. You know, we've been, you know, driving ourselves mad with and getting frustrated over for years. Share them and and help people to uh to to educate themselves because it's not you know, it's not about this moment in time right now. And I think with the immediate gratification culture that we have, um, this virtue signaling culture that we have, I think a lot of people are ready for this to be over. I, I went to a Black Lives Matter rally. Yeah, I, I made my profile picture on Instagram black for a day. Um, yeah, I'm not racist. I'm reading an anti-racist book. Um, you know, that, that's not enough. Um, we, we need you to, and it's not an excuse excuse to say, well, I don't really understand what civil asset forfeiture is, or I don't understand qualified immunity. Well, you know what? It's, it's your job as an American citizen to learn about it and to educate yourself. So, you know, it's great to share podcasts like We Are Libertarians, share this video. Um, it's great to do that stuff, but also hold people accountable to take it the next step and start to, you know, understand fully how their liberties are being infringed upon and to uh, to really break break past this uh, this cycle that we're that we're that we're stuck in. And just to to plug Lines of Liberty, LionsofLiberty.com is our website. 
three. We have three podcasts a week. You can find our podcast and all the uh, – major podcasting apps out there. Um, we have a show on Monday hosted by Mark Clare, which is our longest running program, our flagship program. It's more, a lot of interviews with uh, leaders in uh, the Liberty thought movement, uh, things like that. Had a, Mark had a great interview this week with uh, Vin Armani. If you don't know who Vin Armani is, check that out. Has fascinating life. Uh, Wednesday is Electric Liberty Land with Brian McWilliams. It's more focused on culture um, Brian's a funny guy, so he brings some uh, comedic elements to it, does skits and different things like that. And Friday is Felony Friday, my show, where I'm focusing on the criminal justice system every single week. All right, very good. Well, you are my favorite libertarian thought leader. T-H-O-T, get it? All right. There uh, you go. Uh, let's, <laughs> boo. All right, thanks so much, John. Uh, Reinhold, final thoughts? Yeah, the um, I got two. I think uh, the first one is is that we really should be demanding better uh, policing. We should be demanding more from our police officers. When the military is involved in these wars overseas and and they're fighting these insurgents and 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 really having battles, they are under a greater scrutiny than our police officers are to make sure that they they act a certain way and they take care of making sure that any bad actors inside of their units are, are pointed out and gotten rid of. So they really take that seriously and they focus on it and we should be demanding that level of care or higher from our internal police officers. And the other thought was the, um, a lot of people kind of, when they, when you start talking about, um, uh, institutionalized racism, which kind of we started at at the beginning, and I, I wanted to come back around to that for just a second. It's that it's not just uh, the the systematic racism that exists in the system, but it's also a class thing, and it's also a lot of other things, and all the things we've talked about tonight, all the incentives, and so it's not one thing or the other. It's a combination of everything, and uh, I think a lot of people kind of start getting into the, well, you're not talking about the one thing I want to talk about when this sort of thing happens, right? So we had, we've had several incidents over the past month that have kind of brought the systematic racism aspect of it to the focus, but that doesn't mean that that's the only aspect of it. And you shouldn't focus on the fact that that is what's being talked about in your concerns aren't being heard or your your thoughts of well we should be talking about this thing over here or we should be talking about the class system instead or we should be talking about um, this aspect of it um, we really need to look at it holistically of, as everything and not get into those petty disagreements so that's pretty much all I had to say about the, the topic on that thanks thanks Forrest uh, all right Sarah final thoughts um, just, I, I kind of want to, again, kind of connect back to what was touched on at the beginning and a, a topic that I don't see come up in a lot of these lists of reforms, but is there's a lot of benefit that could be done by, by considering, uh, the systematic, the voting rights aspect of this, that if we look historically, you know, there's always been this, this huge disconnect between, between black cultures and white cultures in, in America. Um, but it's really been enforced by that disparate access to the uh, to to our uh, political system. And then you look back and you see that there the points in American history where 
black people have had the best access. So, I mean, like right after the Civil War, before before the southern states especially had a chance to uh, institute a lot of the Jim Crow laws and a lot of the ways to legally undermine um, black participation in the political system. Those are the times where you really see not just uh, black communities, but but our entire culture, our entire American um, society is really flourishing. We have increases and in even like patents was my favorite thing that I recently learned about is that when people back to what what Harry was saying earlier, when people trust our government, when people trust the systems that are supposed to be keeping us protected and supposed to be uh, making sure to keep us equal and enforce our laws equally, then we have a chance to flourish. But when we know that these things are undermined by the systems that they are in, then you we it's not just some communities. It's not just them. It's it's all of us uh, who who suffer uh, overall from from the lack of engagement from actually actively trying to keep our communities from having full uh, from having full access to engaging in civil society. Um, but I mean, I think it's it's a really great list of, of reforms to to start with. And it's, luckily, civil asset forfeiture is something that's been getting more uh, more news time recently. And so has the issues of, um, of all of these different incentives that we've really been talking about. But the question really will be, is this just a slightly louder moment where now we're all paying attention to the protests and paying attention to this outrage? And yes, you got more white people showing up for protests and we are more willing to listen and consider and care. But even things like Microsoft and uh, I want to say Google, but the um, companies that were having um, no, Microsoft and Amazon, that's who it was, who were having uh, facial recognition software to police. There's been a lot of support over the fact that they're taking away the ability of police to use their technology, but not a whole lot of focus on the fact that they're literally just banning it for a year. My worry is that we're going to see all of this enthusiasm around let's fix the system, let's reform is just like it has in the past. It's going to die off and it's going to remain just an underlying narrative until the next time that we have such a high profile situation. And, you know, next time it might not be in a situation that's extra primed for protests and riots where we've got more people who are unemployed so more people can get out and get involved. Next time, it might be like it's been in the past, where it's while we're normally engaged in society, our economy is up and running and people just look past it and don't even notice it. Let's you know, if we can actually get some reform done now, if we can actually make real difference, then maybe we won't have quite as many of those happen. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like the momentum is here. You know, it's it's only boomer voters can stop us now. <laughs> uh, but right. even then, you can really you can aim at it as we we want to be pro police here. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I've heard that really angers a lot of the Republicans and Boomers that I know is the thought of there are no such thing as good cops. But if you if you dig into that though, the the whole thought behind that is because have you ever heard the term the the it's a slogan that good that good cops either don't stay good or don't stay cops. Hmm. And that's a statement not on individuals and not on good actors or bad actors. That's a statement on the system as a statement about that. Did you have good people who get involved and who really want to try and make change? But I mean, we could see example after example of when when officers actually try to change things from the inside, when they try to hold each other accountable, when they try to be that good in the system, you know, they're not given promotions. They're forced out They're They're treated unfairly by other officers because the the system is set up to encourage that we have to be 
insulated from the outside. I mean, they even teach in police academies that you are the sheepdogs taking care of the sheep. And to sheep, wolves and sheepdogs look really similar. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, And and that's the mindset. Yeah. Again, everybody's a criminal. Like, and I remember Mm -hmm. when I, and I've said this on the show, so forgive me if it's, it's uh, repetitive, but you know, I rode with a police officer because I wanted to become a police officer as a kid. And then in high school, I got a ride along my senior year. And the police officer was like, you know, it, it, and this was 99, 2000, 2001, somewhere around there. You know, everybody, everybody looks at us like we're the a-holes, we're the enemy, uh, but they don't know all the good stuff we do and, you know, listed off several good things and, and public services that they did and charities that they had raised. And, you know, and and I'm even guilty of of painting with a broad brush on this issue. Uh, but individuals in a system sometimes have a hard time separating themselves from that system because of that personal incentive. They're just doing their job. And. We never hold the system accountable. We're blaming the police officers. But I bet if you sat down and talked to most police officers, they wouldn't want to have to deal with what they deal with on a daily basis or, or arrest people for what they, you know, I mean, there's always going to be the authoritarian psychos in any group, but especially attracted to, to this line of work. But I don't think they want to have to enforce all the stuff they're doing. I don't, you know, I, I just had that moment of clarity when I watched on the circle I drove by after the, the first night of rioting here in Indianapolis, watching several police officers put on their riot gear. And I'm just like, I bet those guys don't want to do that. I bet they don't want to go down and be involved and get in. They don't want to have to do this, you know? And, and that's where I think it comes in. We've had several conversations with listeners over the, the years where they've emailed us and said, you know, I work for the government. What should I do? And I'm like, quit. Like, find a way to do something else. Like, you know, but then there's attrition, and then you get the worst are attracted to the policing industry. It's, and then, then you end up with Joe Biden and Donald Trump as your choices because nobody who's sane and rational wants to run for president, you know? And so that's why you just have to work on decreasing the power of the government overall because the nature of bureaucracy is that it completely erodes the people that are in the bureaucracy. And what I learned from that police officer, this is quoting him. I've never forgotten it. You know, we spend 90% of our time around the bottom 10% of the population, which I think is a telling psychological line there. Uh, And then eventually 90% 90 becomes that 10% to us. Everybody looks that way. And after 15 years, something happens to officers where they just flip and they turn into somebody that is, you know... uh, problematic. So, um, somebody just rang my doorbell, so I got a little distracted. So yeah, I mean, the, the, it, 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 it sets into their mindset too. And so it becomes a systemic problem that needs to be reformed and they need to be in on the discussion. So, all right. Thanks everybody for joining us. We really do appreciate it. And, uh, I want to thank all of our listeners again. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends. And if you found it, uh, helpful, I appreciate it. All right. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll talk to you soon.